Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The government has given employees the right to request to work from home, but it's criticised by the opposition for not going far enough. We'll discuss what this means for you and your employer with our panel. Also tonight, as tensions ratchet up across Eastern Europe, Ireland warns against all but essential travel to Ukraine. We're live in Moscow and the police is now, are now investigating those Downing Street parties during lockdown, what that means for the beleaguered Boris Johnson. We want to know what you think. You can get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. Working from home has become the norm for a large part of our population, but an abrupt end to restrictions has meant that employers and employees having to think about what their work future holds. Today, the Thornish have brought forward new legislation giving employees the right to request to work from home. Here is what Leah Radker had to say. The employer can say yes. Uh, they can issue a counteroffer. Um, perhaps partially accepting your request, uh, which you then have a month to uh, accept or refuse, uh, or they can say no. But if they say no, they have to give a good reason and it has to be a stated reason. Well, joining me in studio to discuss this more is People Before Profit, TD Breed-Smith, Minister of State in the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Robert Troy, and employment lawyer at law firm, Lewis Silken, Shivra Rush. But first, I'm joined tonight via Skype by Dee Woods, Nova radio presenter. Um, Dee, from your point of view, the working from home started like it did for so many people two years ago when you had to do the unthinkable, uh, leave the radio building and bring all your work back home. Uh, what was the adjustment like? Well, I haven't seen most of my colleagues since we said, see, in two weeks, March 2020. Um, I had been doing some work from home. I do a lot of voiceover work from my home studio here. But as regards a live broadcast, that had never happened before then. So there was a bit of tweaking involved. It was a, obviously, like many people, it was a bit of a rush job to make sure the home setup could, you know, make us all continue our work seamlessly and it did kind of work it was very odd in the beginning even though I'm on my own in the studio in Radio Nova being on my own in the house and certainly at the very beginning of lockdown when creches and schools were off the extra challenge of my young children being here at the same time and having to shush them during live links and things like that so yeah there was challenges but now here we are faced with the thoughts of going back full-time potentially and that's in itself is now going to be another adjustment so it's 
yeah, it's it's been a roller coaster, really. Yeah, there's been so many changes for so many people, um, and you're not alone uh, working. You're not working there alone because your husband also works in the radio business. Um, he also has that job. How did you manage that between you? And what would you say were the main pros and cons? You mentioned, you know, keeping children quiet. Everyone will be familiar with that, especially when schools were off. Uh, but but what were the main things that you said? Yeah, this works for me, but other elements of it don't. I suppose not getting away from each other was the pro and con, you know, during it. I mean, like we were lucky we had the setup, but as I said, we, we, you know, we sorted that out quick enough to, to make sure the listener didn't really notice there was any difference. Uh, for us, though, you know, in a personal level, um, it, it was tough. Like, you know, you were at home 24-7, whether it was cooking a dinner, mopping the floor or presenting a radio show, sometimes all at the same time. Uh, and then, you know, just trying to differentiate work from your home life, trying not to talk about work all the time, trying to talk about COVID all the time. Like so many households around the country, it was just uh, personal and professional lives blurred together and it led to a stressful environment. Now, I don't have a stressful job per se, but, you know, it did. It was a bit of a pressure cooker at times. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. Uh, now, you are returning to work on a staggered basis up at the crack of dawn, actually, tomorrow. So sorry for keeping you up late, Dee. But um, on okay. that, how are you finding uh, the re-entry to the workplace? Was it a shock going back? Yeah, and I mean, and it's still very much like a bit of a dream because there's so few people. We've hardly anybody in our office, in our studios, just yet. And then even the travel into work, you know, well, I'm up early anyway because I'm covering the breakfast show at the moment on Radio Nova. But yeah, like I, I, the thought of going back to a packed commuter train or queuing for a sandwich, you know, in the city centre at lunchtime is a little unnerving, I won't lie. And I, I'm, I'm not sure anybody's able to just go straight back into that. I think there's all these announcements in the last couple of days have taken a lot of people by surprise. Yeah. Um, so do you think on foot of that and the new laws um, that are being proposed around this to make it maybe an easier option for people or certainly open that conversation between employer and employee, um, do you think it should become a standard option for people? I think there's pros, there's arguments for both sides. It, it probably depends on the job, really. I mean, if people have found themselves, you know, we were all forced into working from home at the beginning of all this. And if output of a certain, someone's job hasn't changed I don't see why going into an office should be enforced it obviously depends on the work they do but for, for us you know we've managed to keep it going yes we work in a creative environment a lot of stuff happens organically when we're shooting the breeze in the office with people and talking to our production teams and all that so I mean it's beneficial for us to go in if not all the time some of the time but I, I think if someone can work from home and do the same thing, it, possibly even more so, I think a lot of people have been working extra hours just because they're not commuting or mm. the, the work setup is there on the kitchen table. They're probably putting more in a lot of people. So maybe it is more beneficial to stay at home for many. Okay, well, listen, Dee Woods, thanks for that and telling us all about your experience and off to bed with you now. Best of luck uh, getting up early and going back to the workplace tomorrow morning. Um, Dee Woods, Radio Nova presenter, joining us uh, there tonight. Um, now, onto my panel on this issue, um, just to discuss this these new proposed laws. The government said they were going to do something about this. The last two years really have shown that against all the odds, people have moved their workplace into the home, so many of us. Um, Shiva Rush, to you first on this. Um, as an employment lawyer, what do you make of this right to request uh, re remote working bill? It's, it's, it's quite a mouthful, but essentially it's a right to request it. Yeah, it's a right to request. And, and I think 
probably as much as, as can be done in terms of obviously remote work was forced on people who could do work from home, maybe, maybe office workers. Um, as part of the government strategy on remote work, which was announced last year, we had hoped to see this legislation in Q3 or Q4 of 2021, but it's materialised now. We probably have a gap because it's only a draft scheme of a bill. We don't actually have even draft legislation yet, so that's hoped to come in um, at Easter time and then be passed before the summer. It's a great roadmap for employees in terms of setting out some floor rights about you know, how they go about making a request. And they also have visibility about what an employer has to do. So the employer must respond to the request within 12 weeks. Um, if they're going to uh, accede to the request, they must give details about how the arrangement is going to work, how many days it'll, it'll work on, when it's going to start, if there's going to be a trial period, if they're going to refuse the request, uh, the draft scheme at the moment sets out some business reasons as to why an employer might refuse a request, but yeah. they're not limited to that. So and let's just talk about that, yeah. because that's what struck a lot of people when they looked at this. Maybe we're just not used to looking at this sort of legislation, but the 13 opt-outs essentially for a boss to say, no, this doesn't work for us. Uh, why why are, are they there? Uh, because it, it has sort of been you know, flagged up as being something that's very much to the benefit of an employer rather than a worker in this instance? Well, uh, I don't think I'd necessarily call it an opt-out. I think that um, employers do need to, and, and you know, the, the draft scheme of the bill specifically says that they should retain the ability to determine the working conditions based on their own assessment of their business needs. And I know that while people have been working remotely um, and, you know, have probably been keeping businesses afloat during this time. It may be that employers want to try and grow their businesses now that we're out of the, the well, hopefully out of the pandemic situation and that they want people to come in for collaboration, for innovation. Um, I, I think that most will go for a, a hybrid environment, but I'm, uh, this list isn't set in stone. It is an indication of some of the fair and objective business reasons that could be given as to why um, a, a request could be refused. But it, it could be an, an amended request. So an employer might say, I can't facilitate it on a full-time basis, but you could work remotely okay. two days a week. It's not, yeah. it's not an exhaustive list, that no, list of, no. of 13 reasons that we've seen there today. Um, Robert Troy, what do you hope this bill will achieve? Well, I think what we want to build on is one of the positives that came out of COVID-19, and that clearly demonstrated that people could work remotely, could work from home, and productivity wasn't necessarily affected. So what we want to do and what we are doing in this piece of legislation is for the first time, giving people a right to request to work from home, giving people that choice. Um, and as the previous speaker has said, it clearly outlines the structure and the framework in terms of which that will operate. So um, government has been very strong in terms of our support for people working remotely. Uh, we've invested in remote working hubs mm. uh, in every town and village across the country. Uh, we will do more, invest in more uh, later on this year. But this, for the first time, is given employees a choice to make that request for the ability to work from home. And I think that's very positive. Right. Uh, Breed Smith, it's giving employees the right to make the request, to have that conversation with their boss and for the framework to be established around it. From that point of view, is it a good thing? No, big deal. You could probably do that anyway. There's no law going to stop you asking your employer to facilitate you in such a way. What it doesn't do is give workers a right. 
there's 13, you call them opt-out clauses, I agree with that, but they, they're grounds on which they would be able to refuse that are being proposed. And two of them include the word potential, potential negative impact on quality, mm. potential negative in, impact on performance. And that's a, a big statement for an employer. So it's up to the employer's discretion to describe what that potential is and how that could be um, the basis for refusing either blended working or certain um, you know, full-time working from home or just a day a week working from home. And the thing is, I don't think we should forget for one minute how angry workers are about this because they were asked to stay at home and work from home. Tens of thousands of them did that. And you heard from the, um, the, the DJ there, a lot of this stuff was sacrifices, but a lot of it was positives as well. And the sudden nature of the lifting of the restrictions has left a lot of people going, well, what am I going to do about um, you know, looking after my parent or the kids or whatever it is, that they've rearranged their lives over two years and now they're being told Can you see, yeah. that, that the restrictions are lifted. Can you and see there are some there isn't instances, a room there for negotiation. There are some instances for, and some jobs where you, you have to go into a workplace. You can't so, drive a bus remotely. Exactly. You can't look after a patient. And Leo Varadkar said that in the telly today, kind of insultingly, because everybody knows the certain things things you can't do and they weren't done from home during the pandemic. We're talking about the type of work that was done from home, the sort of office work, the financial services, the local authorities, the public services. And it's absolutely possible to give workers rights within this, not to just give them the right to ask, but rights to where they might be entitled to it. Somebody said on Twitter, I thought it was a great description. It's a bit like Oliver Twisting's, Oliver Twist saying, please, sir, can I have more? And he gets a ladle across the head, you know, sure, that's all you're getting. And, and, or I'll and come it back feels to you. I'll like come back to you in lots of weeks. workers about that. Um, I think, I think Robert, not, like on that matter, you know, we, you could arguably have the conversation, and actually, people probably are having that conversation right now about, you know, what what we're going to do because we're told yes, workplaces can reopen and you can all go back into the office, um, and surely all those conversations are having now, are happening now. Is there a need for this legislation, which doesn't enshrine workers' actual right to remain and to work at home? I think this legislation is positive because it does ensure for the first time that they have a right to request. And this is going as far as we possibly can based on the legal advice because what Breed is ignoring is that there is already contract there between employers and employees. So we can't and the state can't uh, unilaterally impose uh, something on employers. But what we can do and what we are doing in this legislation is putting in place a good framework where people can make that request. And the default position is where practically possible people will be facilitated in this request. We went out on a public consultation on this uh, proposal last year. 175 uh, respondents came in and of that 175 respondents, only 4% of the respondents considered that there should be no reasonable grounds uh, for refusal. You have to have that built in because at I'm the end sorry, of the day... I'm sorry, 175 respondents, who were they? Just members of the public, cross party, workers, uh, uh, companies? Uh, companies, unions, um, um, uh, advocacy groups on behalf of employers and individuals. So there was okay. uh, engagement across stakeholders. Okay. That's the no, legal advice. This no, is as far as you can go. It's when not up to the government to make a decision okay. on behalf of private companies and what they do with their When employees. it comes to legal rights for workers in this country, we're weak. We're weak compared to the European Union. For example, there's no automatic right to trade union recognition. Even under Thatcher, 
workers in Britain got an automatic right to tra trade union recognition once there was a certain percentage of the workforce who joined the union. We haven't had that. We, we, people in this city fought for it since 20, 1913. But the other thing is, there's always the insistence that we can't, under any circumstances, do anything against the employers. There were circumstances in which the Cleary's workers and the Debenhams workers were refused proper redundancy. And that was never dealt with by this government, even having commissioned and got a, a, a report on it. They haven't dealt with rights for workers in, in, in a way that shows that they're on the side of workers. It's always the insistence that the employers must be facilitated. And this is what causes people to feel, where am I getting the rights here? I have the right to ask. Yeah. You have the right to ask your employer anything. Right, OK. I think that's unfair I'm, because like, if you look at the legislation that's coming in this year, there's the statutory sick pay coming in, the protection of tips coming in, an, an additional public holiday bringing us in line uh, with other European countries. No, that's it's not. not. That, One that, additional that, holiday that, would that not is, bring us in line with all, other European countries. That is countries. all for the benefit of workers. Or, or, and what we're doing here is you have to have a balance between the employer and the employee. Okay. Because if, if businesses is, is not allowed to be supported, to develop and grow then businesses will be put out of business and you won't be worried whether people are working from home or have the right to request to work from home. We need to protect businesses You're also. You're right is, about this not is, getting in this, this, been done yeah. in a, this has been done in a very fair, but balanced approach. Businesses are always looked after. Workers' rights in this country stand at a low edge compared with the rest of Europe. I want I to disagree with that, Breed. Okay, I, I want say, to yeah. ask you, Shiva, just on one point in this because um, I don't know if there needs to be a little bit of clarity around it. Um, Leo Fradker you know, saying earlier about this um, right to appeal um, the decision to the Workplace Relations Commis Commission. Can you tell us about the, the steps that can happen after you request the right to work from home? Uh, where does it go there? And what, you know, when we're talking that, about that framework, is it, is it a case if the employer doesn't respond to you that then you have a case to bring it, bring it forward? Yeah, there are three uh, situations where an employee can bring a claim to the WRC and that's if an employer either fails to give a decision or if they fail to provide the, the grounds, so be it one of the 13 grounds or another what they perceive to be a fair and reasonable ground on a, on a business basis for, for refusing or... Um, for for um, not not dealing with a request to amend properly. So there's kind of three situations, but th there's no right to go to the WRC if you feel that the reason given is unfair of itself. Right, um, so it's not, it's not like that, that's sort of not the impression we got earlier, I, perhaps from give, the can I interject on that one, can Robert I Troy, would here? you agree? There was no. a sense that if you're, if you're not and, happy and with so, that, and, you can bring it on. You, you actually can't, it, and, it stops there. But if I could, um, that's something that is going to be ironed out and an engagement is ongoing with the AG to see can that uh, be implemented. This is a draft uh, bill. This is not the final bill. It's not even a, a, a fully uh, completed. And that's something that will be worked on over the next number of weeks and will be addressed by the time it comes Why into the doll at second stage. It's this, this long to get you know, for the, for the bill to come forward. Uh, just when we were hearing that it might have been due out at the end of the year, we're now into 2022. Um, you know, it might be Easter, it mightn't be coming to law really until well, perhaps the, the end of this year. The commitment is that uh, the bill will be published in its totality by Easter and it will be brought through the Houses of Direct Oireachtas before the summer recess. Um, 
we did have to do, carry out a public consultation, which happened last year. Uh, there was legal advice and legal uh, opinion being sought in relation to the draft and the heads of the bill. And to be fair, our department has been extremely busy. It's one of the busiest departments in terms of its response uh, to COVID. We've the credit guarantee scheme brought in, we've the various supports for businesses. So unfortunately, it was a little bit later than what we had wished, but it will be enacted before the summer recess. Claire. It's a lot less than what, pe what workers would have wanted, given that they've worked successfully remotely for the last two years. But you're you're, 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 you're but again preempting the decision by employers. And employers, if this is your best foot em put forward, Employers will poor. respond to what in, is in the best interest of the workers. It's, a, it's an employee market out there and they will want to ensure that they retain yeah. quality workers. And, and I, you don't even acknowledge that. I think it's very clear that like one of the requirements on employers will be to have a remote working policy. And given the fact that, as Breed has said, employers employees can request remote working as a matter of contract at the moment. And Leo Varadkar has been very clear that employers should be consulting with employees about getting them back to work. It shouldn't be a knee-jerk everybody come back to work as of the 24th of January. So what employers would be best to do is put in place some kind of remote work policy now that broadly complies with maybe the draft scheme of the bill and, and you know, the code of practice that might come in to facilitate these requests. Yeah, to, an, yeah. to anticipate what's coming down the line. Yeah. I'm sure it's already um, a hot topic in, in plenty of workplaces. Uh, well, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Robert Troy and Shiva Rush. Uh, Breed will be staying with me as up next we discuss the ever-increasing threat of conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. It's been another day of high tension right across Europe as diplomats struggle to lower tensions between Russia and Ukraine. On the ground, it's looking more ominous. Earlier today, the United States delivered military equipment and munitions to Kiev across the border in Russia. New military drills took place near the border involving some 6,000 troops. Back home here in Ireland, the government says it's advising against all non-essential travel to Ukraine. Well, people before profit, TD Breed Smith is still here with me. I'm also joined by author and security analyst Tom Clonan and Professor of Politics and Government at DCU, Donico back on. Um, you're welcome along to the programme tonight. Uh, signs, as we say, looking ominous. Um, 
you know, they're really ratcheting up in terms of, you know, the drills that are taking place. And then we've seen this, what's been seen potentially as a provocation, plans for these drills off our own, um, naval drills off our own southwest coast. In terms of what Russia is doing and how NATO, NATO are in turn responding to that, um, Donica, where do you see this going? What sort of scenarios are we looking at now in the coming days? Well, we have to be, I guess, prepared for all scenarios because the intent hasn't been made clear. On the one hand, the Kremlin is saying that it has no ill intent towards Ukraine, that its army is exclusively on its own territory, which it is, and uh, that they don't have any plans to invade Ukraine. The problem is, is that, you know, seven, just over seven years ago, we had a similar scenario with a large buildup on the borders of Ukraine and similar statements of, uh, you know, benign intent. And Crimea was annexed and essentially Donbass came under pro-Russian control. So there's a, you know, in very recent history, we've seen, you know, Russia more or less claim that it's it's not intending to invade Ukraine and, and invading. So, you know, we're not talking about something new here for the people of Ukraine. And the question now is, what does this army mean? What's it trying to achieve? Is it trying to achieve political concessions through military means? That's one possibility. Or is it a pretext for, for an invasion? And if so, what does that mean? Does it mean a, a large, full-scale invasion of Ukraine? I think that's very unlikely. Uh, it would be too big to digest. Uh, it would be very unpopular domestically in Russia as well, I, I hasten to add. Um, a partial invasion, uh, perhaps, or... Perhaps, you know, another possibility is recognizing those separatist regions of Luhansk and Donetsk as, as independent states, something that they did with uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which are internationally recognized as Georgian uh, in 2008. So there's a, there's a range of possibilities. And, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, diplomacy is scrambling to keep up, because they don't really know what Russia is planning. Yeah, um... I mean, Tom Clonan, like from, from, from your point of view, when, when we've seen what Putin has done in the past, he has form here. Uh, it's, not just, it's not just him, really. It's right across the board. I mean, there are political, there are huge power plays at stake here on a, on a geopolitical scale. Um, but do you think that's, you know, a case of Russians flexing their military muscle here, um, or is there more intent behind it that this, this really could come to a crunch? Well, it's a big flex. I mean, they... Estimates range from between 100 and 175,000 troops. And to maintain troops in those numbers, you know, to forward deploy them to the border, you know, you're talking about, you know, the best part of 250,000 logistics and frontline troops. So that's a major investment. And the Russians have done this very overtly over a period of time. I think some analysts trace this back to the NATO summit of April 2008 in Budapest when George Bush somewhat unexpectedly announced that both Georgia and uh, Ukraine would become members of NATO. And unfortunately for both of those countries, that, that acted as a provocation to Russia, but they didn't enjoy the, the kind of mutual protection clause of NATO because they're not members. Mm -hmm. So it placed them in a very invidious position. Um, within four months of that announcement, uh, Russia invaded Georgia. But just to put that in context, Georgia at the time had a standing army of about 10,000 troops. And that invasion lasted around about 10 days. Uh, and the Russians put a force of about 120,000, so 10 times the size of the Georgian army. Uh, and at the time, the Russians told me that they were presented with an unexpected opportunity to have a short, winnable war. This is very different. So the Ukrainians, they have about 100,000 uh, soldiers in the field who have had some combat experience since 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the, 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 the conflict in, in Luhansk and, and Donetsk. So 
it wouldn't be, you know, quite the same type of winnable short war for, for Russia. I think it would be a prolonged, uh, brutal conflict with mass casualties on both sides and, and, and horrific civilian casualties. But what the Russians might do, if they felt sufficiently emboldened, is, um, you know, some people feel that they might seek to secure a land corridor from Russian territory down to the, the Crimean, Crimean Peninsula in the south. And they're testing the waters to see, you know, how, how much resolve does NATO have? How much resolve does the European Union have? Yeah, um, Brie, like on this, when, when you hear that, it's pretty scary about what could happen in the coming days and um, playing out the different scenarios here. Um, what's your... What's your take on what's happening, um, you know, from, from the point of view of Europe's response to all of this and indeed how the US is trying to exert its own influence within the European decision making here? Well, I think it's clear that what we're witnessing here is a conflict between two big imperial powers, Russia and NATO, on the other hand. And NATO have been expanding rapidly towards Russia's border and it, moving into countries right, right across the, the east. Um, and Russia are, are throwing shapes uh, to, to, to try and stop them. Now, everybody knows Putin is a tyrant. He represses people very savagely in his own country, recently invaded uh, Kazakhstan, or at least backed up the regime in Kazakhstan was a threat. When the working class went on major protest over price hikes and energy, they were viciously crushed and dozens of them killed. We didn't hear a word from the Irish government about that, by the way. We put out an open letter condemning it and got you know people from all over uh, Europe and Ireland to sign it, politicians, etc., to condemn that sort of action. But they're throwing shapes at each other. And I don't accept for one minute that NATO and the Western powers are concerned about democracy within, U in U within Ukraine. It's a bit like the analogy with the First World War. We were always told the great powers of Britain, France and Germany really were, you know, protecting pithy little Belgium. That wasn't the case at all. They were throwing shapes at each other and trying to uh, reinforce their own spheres of influence. How is this avoidable now when it's come to this, when we're seeing this escalation on both sides, though, Breed? Well, first um, of all, I think what, what it's not in the interest... In your view? I do not think it's in the interests of the Ukrainian people, and I believe there's a lot of resistance to it, to them being identified with either Moscow or Washington. And I think in their interest, it would be great if they were out demanding we want an independent, neutral, democratic country and to stop, you know, and stop the erosion of, of their position within that. I think that would be re really, really a positive thing. I don't think that's going to happen, but if it did, it would be wonderful. But in the meantime, our government are trying to drag our neutrality down the toilet okay. as if they hadn't done enough uh, by allowing the troops land at Shannon for decades right. now. And we, we'll get to that. But just on, on, on whose interest this best serves, I suppose, what's the feeling within Russia on this potential action, um, what Putin is doing with this escalation, and what Breed has alluded to there, how Ukrainians would feel about all of this? Well, I think a full-scale war would be unpopular with people in Russia because they do believe, and it's the official line as well, that you know Ukraine is a kindred nation. Now, uh, how, how kindred they are is a matter of dispute, but certainly I think it would be an unpopular war was it a, if it were a full-scale war. And people have a lot of relatives in Ukraine and have been to Ukraine, so it's, it's not like some far distant country. Um, but on the, on the issue of, of, of NATO expansion and what's best for Ukraine, I mean, Ukraine... I mean, I've been going to Ukraine for 20 years, so I've seen it evolve over a long period of time. And 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, Ukraine, 
the vast majority didn't want to be part of NATO. Uh, they wanted to be neutral. They wanted to be demilitarized. Ukraine, when the Soviet Union collapsed, had nuclear weapons, as did Russia. But they gave them up uh, as part of an agreement, the Budapest Memorandum, where Russia guaranteed its territorial integrity, its sovereignty, its independence, in return for giving up those weapons. So they left themselves defenseless. And you know, they feel that they have suffered for not being part of a military alliance. They don't turn to NATO, uh, you know, for any other reason than their own self-interest, their own perceived self-interest. It's not for us to tell Ukrainians what's in their best interests. They have decided themselves, by virtue of very tough experience, losing thousands of lives. I mean, I've seen walls full of photographs of young people who have lost their lives in the few years. It's because of that that they've turned to NATO. NATO hasn't been going out you know, trying to covet new, new countries in that respect. They have had a queue of countries since the collapse of the Soviet Union. If you talk to the Estonians, the Estonians, they have a population that's smaller than Dublin. You know, it's not in, the, it's not in NATO's interest to be guaranteeing NATO, uh, Estonian security. And they, they feel under threat and they feel that that's what's required. But they, they, but they to, sleep well in their beds them. when the Ukrainians can't. The Ukrainians are 40 million people. They're under a threat. The Estonians, as I said, 1.3 million people. They petitioned to join Ukraine, uh, sorry, join NATO, and they joined the 19... Let yeah, sorry. Yeah, just to get on to the point about our place in all of this and our neutrality here. Mm. Um, you know, it, it has it has been said um, that there is certainly there is certainly pressure to take sides on this and to be allies. You know, within the EU on on potential action and sanctions. How key do you think is our neutrality, Tom? And can it be maintained um, as we stand where we do within Europe? Well, personally speaking, I think neutrality is one of the most powerful assets that Ireland has in terms of our foreign policy influence and you know we our, our diaspora all around the world Irish people are accepted you know, almost everywhere uh, like we stand on the shoulders of giants in terms of you know all, all of our forefathers and mothers who've emigrated all around the world but you know amplifying that is our neutral status mm. and you know we've never invaded another country or colonized anybody and so we we have the potential to bring as we hopefully are at this UN Security Council, to bring our unique perspective to, to conflict in, in the 21st century, because the 21st century is becoming increasingly destabilised. Um, with the exit of Britain from the European Union, we're going to see France and Germany lead a kind of a militarisation of Europe. They're going to accelerate that process. The transatlantic relationship between Europe and the United States, you know, Britain was the linchpin of that. That has now been broken. Yeah. So in this growing era of instability, I think it would be a big mistake if Ireland was to become militarily aligned either with, uh, you know, European military structures with the EU or with NATO. I think what we need to do is invest in our neutrality. And, you and, say and resource, resource the military Yeah, because I, I think this naval exercise, the, the Russian naval exercise of, of the southwest coast in, in February, you know, just highlights some of our deficiencies in our, in our airspace. We can't monitor it. We can't protect it. Our maritime area with the fibre optic subsea oceanic cables, we are the so digital link. there'll be no link. monitoring around those drills. Well, I know we've had fishermen in Cork saying they're going out, they want to protest this, you know, for, yes, for, yeah. for their own reasons. And, um, you know, essentially, you know, fair play to them for doing that. But like, is there a, is there a requirement or a need then for um, our military to step up? And are we in a position to well, do that? Well, well, I think, look, we're the only country in the European Union that doesn't have primary radar. So, but we also have one of the busiest air corridors in the world. You know, 75% of all the air traffic going through the United States goes through Irish controlled airspace. 
We can't monitor our maritime environment. We have nine small naval vessels, four of whom have recently been tied up because of crew shortages. And we have this critical, vital infrastructure, these fibre optic oceanic cables bringing 30% of, of data, Europe's data, to the United States. The, the Russians have been exploring uh, a, a spy ship. The Yantar was, was identified in Irish waters last August near one of our big fibre optic cables. Like, we're Europe's weakest link, and that's why the Russians have chosen to locate their exercise. They're sending a message to NATO and the EU. They're saying, look, we're in your blind spot. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, uh, maintaining neutrality, but sort of beefing up our resources. Would you uh, agree with that, Breed, that we need to do that? Well, the first way we need to beef up our resources is to pay the Defence Forces properly, whether they're in the military or in the Air Corps or in the Navy. We have repeatedly gone to the Dáil and to the Defence Minister and said, will you please pay them properly? We're being lobbied by them. They live in poverty. A lot of soldiers and, and, and naval personnel live in poverty. Uh, housing is uh, pretty poor for them. And if they're going to beef up resources, then they should look at the personnel. They're finding it hard to recruit and retain um, the personnel on the basis of the poor working and living conditions. But we have joined PESCO and you see... I admire what Tom said about buttoning down on, battening down on our neutrality, but we joined PESCO in 2017, which commits us to increasing our military spending fivefold in this country to 2% of GDP, which is a, a big deal in this country when we're shortage of housing, when we haven't got a right. decent healthcare service. So I think it's crazy for the government to be thinking on these lines. And I think it's the Irish government wanting to bring us more closer to, to a military alliance with NATO, with the European Union, and we should utterly reject that and, if necessary, get out and protest against it, the way we did about the Americans using Shannon to conduct their wars in the Middle East. Uh, I want to talk about what potentially could happen here around sanctions and, and that sort of, you know, those sort of actions, the impact that would have. Um, you know, they were talked about before when you were on the show here before Christmas when this was all being discussed before. Um, do they carry much weight and what impact will that have? Because, of course, the Russians can then impose their own sanctions back on Europe uh, should we choose to, to go down that route. It will affect some countries more than others. Um, those most affected will be uh, potentially uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, Germany. Ireland wouldn't be affected that much uh, by the kinds of sanctions that are being uh, considered. Um, but Germany is, is kind of the, the, the spotlights on Germany at the moment because of, for example, Nord Stream. Nord Stream was uh, a pipeline that was conceived uh, at the end of Gerhard Schroeder's uh, time in office before Angela Merkel. And, it, it was quite insidious from a Ukrainian perspective because it's a pipeline that goes around Ukraine. It was to guarantee that Germans would get cheap gas from Russia and that if Ukraine had to be turned off the gas to apply political pressure, it could. And, and then after the annexation of Crimea, another pipeline was being uh, prepared and completed. Now, there's a lot of pressure on Germany to, um, to forego that pipeline. And, and it's resisting. I mean, the, the, the German Chancellor uh, said that sanctions should be prudent because those who apply the sanctions may themselves be penalised. But sanctions to be effective, I guess, will have to involve pain uh, on, on, on the part of, of, of Europe as well. I mean, it won't be a one-sided yeah, action. This, I mean, this is the question. We're, we're talking about the cost of living now, the energy prices that we're seeing. This could have a direct impact on, on how this plays out for us um, with, with energy prices, uh, with all of that as well, Tom. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, that's why, you know, we need to encourage, you know, the wind farms and the alternative energy platforms that we've been investing in. in, the in last preparation for potential Russian yeah, but sanctions. I, but I mean, again, I think, look, we're, we're in a changed world. The whole geopolitical sets of relationships have, be, have become quite unstable. NATO has been forced to withdraw from from in chaos from Afghanistan, leaving Russia and China as the key power brokers in Central Asia after disastrous wars in Syria, Iraq and, you know, the Middle East is now dominated. Well, certainly uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon and Iran by a kind of an Iranian Russian sphere of influence. So what we're learning is that, you know, wars, uh, intervention, you know, uh, unilateral strikes, airstrikes, it, it, it's not achieving anything. It's bad for the planet. It has killed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. We've millions of refugees in the move. We face the challenges of climate change. I just wish the boys, Vladimir and others, would put down the toys and put the ships back into port and just start to talk to one another. So Biden's we, toys as well? Yeah, and, and NATO, yeah. And I mean, I've written about that. You know, okay. Ireland has been used to transit over 3 million US troops to wars in Afghanistan that have killed hundreds and thousands of people and, and placed millions of refugees on the yeah. move for no, for no yeah. positive, tangible result. So I think we all have to step up to the plate, pair apart. But I think neutrality is a central Peter. tenor to all of okay. that. Okay, my thanks to Breed Smith and Donico back on. Tom will be staying with us as after the break we discuss the announcement of a judge-led investigation into allegations of abuse in the Defence Forces. The Minister for Defence has confirmed an independent review into water-term dignity and equality issues in the Defence Forces. It comes after allegations of harassment, bullying and sexual assault on gender grounds by former members. Here's what Simon Coveney and Captain Diane Byrne had to say earlier. The contribution that the Women of Honour have made to this debate is leading to a watershed moment. So in a few weeks' time we will have the report uh, of the Commission on the Future of the Defence Forces, which I think will be very strong in this area. And we are now setting up this review to report to me this year with a series of detailed recommendations on, on how we change systems, uh, legal underpinning, procedures, culture in the Defence Forces. Uh, to make it a safer and more attractive place to work for everybody. We've had these reviews before, they've been going on for 20 years. Why weren't any of those the watershed moments? Why are we wasting time again? Why is this the first step? He's been in this position before. Um, th there are people who've had a duty of care for years here. Why they haven't had these first step watershed moments 20 years ago, they've known all of this. This is not new information. We've all come forward before. We've been talking to them for months on this. They know where we're coming from. We basically feel that we haven't been heard. Well, security analyst Tom Clonan is still with me and um, not everyone on the same page regarding this announcement that came from um, Simon Coveney today. From your own perspective, this is something, a matter that you've been looking at for more than two decades now. Mm -hmm. uh, when Simon Coveney described it as this leading potentially to a, a watershed moment, would you agree with him? Absolutely. I mean, I did the original research 20 years or 23 years ago, but in September the 11th of last year, when Women of Honour came out, you know, the survivors of sexual abuse, sexual assault and rape, they were the first survivors to come out and, you know, to publicly identify themselves 
and to go through that trauma again and their families and their, their loved ones and friends. So that definitely is a turning point. And we, 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 I would say after 23 years of being in this space that this is a very, very significant development today because very quickly uh, some very, very robust terms of references have been evolved. And this will be an independent inquiry headed up by uh, a retired judge, a senior counsel. They will investigate not only the military authorities, but also the Department of Defence and the minister. And, you know, I was very disheartened myself to see the women of honour walk away today. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that they can be persuaded to re-engage because a full statutory inquiry on a legal basis that's not off the table. That's still on the table. This report may recommend that. But there is a very urgent and compelling case to be made. We have 600 women in the Defence Forces today. And I'm sorry to say this, but the Defence Forces, as we speak, is not a safe place for women. But the military authorities, the chief of staff, um, the representative associations and another group of stakeholders, they've all agreed that they want to work together to bring an end mm. immediately to that toxic workplace culture. And it may be the case that this uh, investigation will recommend a full statutory mm. legal basis for the investigation of historical offences. Um, just on that, Tom, you know, talking about that this isn't actually going to deal with um, historical cases necessarily, but present day issues, this is an ongoing issue within the Defence Forces. Um, how, how critical will it be to get to the bottom of this, to get the, the, the facts on this and its independence being key here? Well, again, in the last 23 years, I have never seen uh, the kind of unanimity that's there right now. Um, the Minister for Defence met with the Women of Honour and apologised immediately without hesitation, as did Jackie McCrum, the Secretary General of the Department of Defence. The Chief of Staff is committed to this all of the stakeholders, uh, military management. Now, it is going to have to be a very, very robust and forensic challenge mm. to the culture of the Defence Forces because without preempting any of the, of the research they're going to carry out, you know, the, the causes of this toxic culture are writ large in its kind of non-evidence based training environment and so on. But it, this is a turning point. Turning point but I sense. would reiterate, it's yeah. very important for the women of honour to know that that uh, statutory inquiry on a legal basis is not, is not, not being off the out. table and it's something okay. they should continue to engage sure. and, and well, you know, collaborate, you know, you know, put that point across. And, and put that point across to on it so. to, to see, to see where, where, where they get with it and where it goes. Tom Clonan, thank you for that. Uh, just moving on uh, to another story now and in the UK police are investigating the Downing Street gatherings during lockdown. Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he welcomed the investigation. He hoped officers would help to draw a line under matters. Well, earlier I spoke to Sky News correspondent Ender Brady. I began by asking him what the police said today. So the police bound obviously by the secrecy of their investigation, they're saying nothing other than the fact that we heard from Cresta de Dick this morning, uh, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police confirming that her investigation, her officer's investigation now underway. So we're entering what really will be a perilous 48 hours for the prime minister. I mean, if we end up with a situation where the police report back and fixed penalty notices of the equivalent of €100 Euro are given out to members of Downing Street staff, including the Prime Minister, it puts him in a really, really dangerous position. But as I understand it, as I speak, he hasn't actually got sight of the Sue Gray report, 
which is the senior civil servant that he appointed to look into all of the allegations of partying. Um, that could come as early as seven or eight o'clock tomorrow morning. It's Prime Minister's questions tomorrow lunchtime in the House of Commons. He will obviously make a statement once he's read the Sue Gray report. She is the very senior and respected civil servant that Boris Johnson has put in charge of this investigation. So you got you got two investigations effectively, the civil servant investigation that everyone's been waiting for, and now we have the Metropolitan Police investigation as well. So a very dangerous 48 hours for Boris Johnson. Which probe has more teeth, do you think, And uh, um, Everyone was hotly anticipating this, this report from, from Sue Gray, as you say, and now the police have moved in. Um, how does this change things? I think it is a game changer. Obviously, you've got two investigations, and it's a very good question which one is more important. I think for cabinet colleagues and members of parliament, they'll all be poring over everything Sue Gray has said and what she's written and what she has found. But the police one, I think, in the eyes of the public, would be more damaging if you had a prime minister being given a fixed penalty notice for partying during lockdown with him having set the rules, told the public what to do and implemented all of the lockdowns, three lockdowns here we had in a year and a half, remember, if the prime minister were to end up getting fined, and it's it's 100 euro, basically, that's the equivalent of the fine here, I think that could well be fatal for his premiership. The Grey report obviously will be published with perhaps certain elements of it redacted because of the ongoing police investigation. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. It could take the police six to 12 months to conclude their investigation. All right, that long. Well, we'll have to wait and see. First up, the Sue Gray report. And Brady, Sky News correspondent, thanks for joining us tonight with the very latest on that. Thanks, Claire. And that is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.